You're listening to the Yoga Inspiration Podcast with me, your host, Kino McGregor. I created this series to keep you inspired to get on the mat every day so that you can practice yoga and change your world, starting from the inside out, one breath at a time. Thanks so much for listening. Your support means everything to me. Hi, Wambui. Thanks for joining on the Yoga Inspiration Show. It's my pleasure to have you on as a guest again. Hi, Kino. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. It's been uh, over a year since we met or mm. since we had our first conversation. It's mm-hmm. great, to, great to be back. Absolutely. So I'd love for us to dive into Ashtanga yoga, the style of yoga that we both practice and teach and kind of flush out the definition of what that is and potentially expand it beyond just the physical practice of yoga poses or yoga asanas that many people know. So what do you think about that? Yes, uh, I would love to do that. I That's my passion on how to expand and um, make connections uh, of this lineage, of this practice, of this, uh, you know, just indigenous wisdom that we both uh, love and have been practicing for, for oh, however respectively long we have. So I'm all, I'm all for it. Let's, let's get into it. <laughs> <laughs> Do you think there's some resistance in the Ashtanga community or the yoga community in general about going beyond asana? Um, I don't think there's there's resistance per se. I do think there's a, a practical part in it in that, you know, what brings people into offerings and workshops, what fills the seats, what pays the bills. And I think the physical aspect of the pra- practice, that's kind of the, what we see, you know, as the most responsive. Um, so. I think it's really more just like trying to um, introduce, uh, uh, like I said, an interdisciplinary, intersectional idea of of what the practice is, how we might be able to access the first two limbs, as well as, you know, some of the the more interior four limbs. um, So for people who aren't familiar, what are those first two limbs? Well, the yamas and the yamas, right? The Mm -hmm. observances, you know, on how to live a social life, how to be in relationship with one another. And then the ones that are more sort of on a personal level, right? Yamas, from my understanding, are the more like out there in the world. Mm -hmm. And then the yamas are sort of that internal relationship you have with yourself, which are, of course, interconnecting how you show up in the world and how you show up for yourself. And then the final four limbs, they are the more inwardly oriented ones of, you know, where you withdraw the senses and then going into further, further levels of refinement of the mind, um, ultimately attaining or remembering, returning to samadhi, which is, I don't know, what is samadhi? (laughs) You know, maybe you can, I don't, I don't dare speak on it, but um, (laughs) I think I've had little hints here and there, but it's the the um, return to the the greater, greater, mm-hmm. yeah, it's, big S self. Yeah, absolutely. I'd say every <laughs> every yoga practitioner has had those those hints, right? That's why those we're, hints. That's why we keep coming back to the mat. Mm-hmm. We want those mm-hmm. hints to turn into suggestions. We want them to turn into eventually maybe answers. Right. right. 
Right. And like then just deep, deep, deep embodied knowing mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. where the questions fall away. Yeah. So I feel it's kind of hard to create a workshop around that. Like, how do you do <laughs> samadhi drills? You know what I'm saying? Like, follow these steps to attain samadhi. It's easier and much more practical to start with the physical body mm-hmm. of like, you know, backbending uh, workshop, you know, strength workshops, uh, because those are practical, tangible things that the everyday person can grasp which is, mm-hmm. I think, my understanding why we start with the body, because it's sort of the most tangible aspect that, that we can um, work with and work through in order to get to, to, to sort of the different koshas or layers of, of our embodiment. So how, so how does one um, market the more unseeable parts of, of, of the practice? Um, so I don't think there's resistance per se, but I do feel that we uh, lose opportunity on what, on how we can um, expand Ashtanga Yoga if we're only offering, you know, these sort of tried and tested um, uh, things that we know will bring people in. Mm-hmm. You because know, focusing, there is that, like micro-focusing on the technique offerings, you know, well, there is that micro-focusing the practice, on, mm-hmm, on, on the practice. Right. And there's that practical element of we know people will be interested in X. And if we try Y and there's no turnout, then why to try again? Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it can be challenging. So it's like asana brings people in the door. Mm-hmm. And then these other more subtle limbs are there. And we have, we have as you mentioned, the, the first two limbs and then the more subtle ending limbs of samadhi. And, you know, I, I almost feel that there's more excitement around pursuing samadhi because the people get on these spiritual kicks. And then when we bring up ahimsa, satya, and the notion of nonviolence and the notion of truthfulness, and then ask people to live that in their lives, then we start to, um, I, I definitely have been criticized for making you know, yoga political when bringing those things up or being told to stay in my lane and stick to asana. And, you know, what right do I have to comment on this broader, you know, moral and ethical situation in the world because I'm just the yoga teacher. Right. And, right. and so I think there is this perception that the yoga teacher is just about asana and this is definitely a result of uh, maybe what you could call a colonized view of what a yoga teacher is, rather than you know a, tra- a, a traditional or, or, or origin culture based notion of what a yoga teacher is. So, what is what do you see as the defini- definition of ahimsa within the Ashtanga Yoga tradition? And can there be um, other inf- in, are there other traditions or information that can inform or expand that for the contemporary yoga practitioner? Totally, totally. And I'm really glad you asked that question. And I actually have literally just been doing my research on that. The be- the, the most kind of like salient definition of ahimsa that ties directly to what I've heard described within yoga philosophy spaces, within Ashtanga yoga tradition, comes from um, Mia Mingus who does a lot of work, I believe, in the Oakland, Berkeley area on accountability. She has an incredible uh, series of blog posts on how to give a genuine apology. It's really good. I think it's like the four parts to an apology. Anyway, she describes 
uh, actually, this is in what when she was asked what transformative justice means, and she says transformative justice is a way to respond to violence and harm without creating more violence and harm. And I'm like, how is that not ahimsa, right? Mm. That just so I just see like in my work of being um, socially engaged yoga practitioner. I've had to seek out from different um, pedagogies and just different communities and people doing this amazing work on accountability and how to reduce the harm and violence we see in the world. I've had to, to, to really seek definitions of ahimsa. And so this is what I mean when we can really just pull in from so many different places principles that we work with as yoga practitioners, principles that we can be like, oh my goodness, that is ahimsa. And so this is why I would like to see the, the, um, our view of Ashtanga yoga expand just beyond like, okay, yamas, niyamas, yamas, niyamas, because it's not leaving them out at all, but it's more like walking around the situation and looking like how are people in transformative justice, what are they doing when they're trying to dismantle mass incarceration? And I know it's kind of a touchy subject when we're talking about uh, abolishment of the police force, right? Like, what would it look like if we had one another to, to um, address how harm and violence happen in our communities without going to the, to the police, right? Um, so that's a, a long answer, I know, but I just see, I, I, and I'm the sort of person who sees, likes to make connections across like seemingly disparate topics and communities. I've always been that way. So when Mia Minga says transformative justice is responding to harm and violence in a way that doesn't create more harm and violence, I'm like, that's ahimsa. Mm -hmm. I love that. You know what I'm saying? It's just such a beautiful, beautiful summation of what Ahimsa is. And so then I'm interested in like, ooh, as I want to learn more about Ahimsa, then it leads me to transformative justice. And I still feel that I'm like really on my yogic path when I'm learning about transformative justice. And Absolutely. it makes my definition of Ahimsa stronger as I learn these um, principles of transformative justice. And I would love to share that with people in the Ashtanga yoga community. Yeah, I'd love that. And I, I would love to unpack that even a little bit more and think about and ask maybe people who are listening to think about ways that maybe we have committed an act of himsa by responding to an act of violence and harm in a way that actually created more violence and harm. And it's interesting that you said that this, um, that this teacher, she has uh, these four ways to give an apology. Because yeah, this four parts. Four parts to give an, an authentic apology. Because sometimes when people apologize, they end up actually doing more harm. Right. Even if the intention is to apologize. Right. Sometimes then it ends up creating, you know, much more harm. And so this the is impact. This, yeah. yeah, exactly. Yeah. The, 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 the schism between the impact and the intention or, or right. sometimes, you know, the intention isn't as pure as we think. Sometimes we offer an apology because we think we should. And, right. and then the act of harm is clear. Someone is suffering. And so we apologize, but we don't, we haven't done the work to unpack right. what we're actually apologizing for. Totally. If we can actually own that. Right. So when, 
So for the contemporary yoga practitioner out there, you know, is maybe a first step to identify perhaps as like a homework assignment, ways that they have in the past responded to situations of harm and generated more harm, even if the intention wasn't there, just as a homework assignment. And this could be, you know, on a, on a, on a broad cultural social level, but it could also be in an interpersonal level, you know, when you, you know, your friends and family and this sort of thing. And maybe that's a good like homework assignment to make it real. Totally. How about the, the, does this teacher, would you say her name again, please? Her name is Mia Mingus. Does she have a book that you could recommend to everyone? Not to my awareness, but she does have a blog. um, And I can't think of the name just now, but maybe we can include it in the show notes. Definitely. And the first, you know what the first part of a a genuine apology is? Self-reflection. Taking the time to sit and be with yourself and reflect. So it's not like, and I think sometimes, you know, just with the way things move so fast on social media and just like, it's just so back and forth and so, so reactionary that stepping back and taking time. It's, it's, it's really important that, uh, to, to do that. And, and, and so I would just offer if, if people are in a position where an apology is, or something is like you're, you're being issued to, to come forth with something and, and you're just not there yet that it's sometimes useful just to be like, okay, I hear this. I'm, I'm taking time to step back to self-reflect and then actually do the self-reflection and, and, and then come back, say, I'll be back at such and such a time or, and then make sure you do come back because that's mm-hmm. the whole accountability part, part of it. But the self-reflection was important. Sometimes it takes time to be able to step back and, and draw yourself pratyahara, right sense withdrawal. Like I'm going to just make space. I'm, I'm too close to this harm going on and I can't quite see the forest for the tree. So I'm going to step back, get a little bit of perspective, you know, maybe work towards a little bit of post-traumatic growth before coming back in. Because if, if somebody is still embroiled in the trauma, and the dynamic of that, then this is probably where harm on top of harm can, can happen. And then even when you're trying to do the right thing, it can kind of fall short. Mm. So, so, so very, very, very eloquently stated. And so very true for the rapid pace that our life seems to happen online. You know, there's almost no space for this human processing time where, you know, someone writes something casually in an act of unconsciousness is called out for it and immediately just starts going into defense, 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 when perhaps the appropriate response is, okay, I'm just going to sit with all of this and reflect on it. And I'll make a post again in you know, X amount of days. And then, and then it it was almost difficult as well for people in the social media space to give people that processing time. You know, it's sort of like you either get it right in the first go or you're canceled forever. And then this, you know, creates more harm as well. And and totally. And I would really like to just unpack that some more. And now I'm going to call in the work of (laughs) Adrienne Marie Brown who is an amazing media, I mean, she's amazing. She's a writer, she's a mediator, she does lots of conflict resolution. She, she has written two amazing books, one called Emerge, three amazing books, one called Emergent Strategy, another one called uh, Pleasure Activism, 
and a third called We Will Not Cancel Us, which speaks to this whole cancel culture and call-out culture. And um, so she talks about um, three types of justice. The first one is called punitive justice, right? And this is what we're used to and what we're socialized into and what we see happening in our in our um, in this media spaces, right? And if you think back to your childhood and you do something wrong, harm has has been committed, what happens is that we're often punished. It's like you've done some harm, go to the corner, you're in timeout, you're expelled or there's detention, right? In some way, you're moved, removed from community and from belonging because you've done some harm. And then what happens is that we just like adult this as we grow, we just grow this up. And so it happens that somebody commits harm, they go to prison or then they're given the death penalty or then they're in some way canceled from community and from belonging. Okay. And this is what we're used to and what we're socialized into. And we do see this happening. We have seen this happening even in the history of our lineage, you know, just back in 2017, right? We just saw, you know, all this kind of like just trauma response after trauma response and no like real resolution and healing happening, right? Um, Even as people were trying to do the best they could with what they knew at the time. Um, And then so she speaks moving from punitive justice towards restorative justice. Restorative justice is taking steps in the right direction, which is harm has happened. How do we restore ourselves back to the relationship that existed before the harm happened? So an example is someone steals a purse and maybe they give an apology, maybe they do community service, and then we return back to where we were. But she says this restorative justice doesn't go far enough because if the original conditions before the harm happened were unjust, returning to those original conditions is not justice, right? There's a reason why somebody probably stole a purse. It's because maybe they don't have enough money to eat and they're hungry. And if we just go back to things as they were, they're still hungry and still have a need that's not being met. And so her definition of transformative justice is where we go to the root system of the harm being created so that that harm can no longer has the harm doesn't have to happen because people are getting what they need. So it's her definition. Again, this is Adrian Marie Brown. It's how do we change, heal, transform things at the root system so the harm is no longer possible. This to me is ahimsa. And these are the sorts of things that I would just, you know, and they're talking on a practical level as how do we not need the prison system anymore? So folks like Mia Mingus and Adrian Marie Brown are really talking about how do we change things that are so deeply unjust and punitive on a structural level without the need of the state, the state being extremely embroiled in the punitive justice model. Mm. And so this means we need to turn to one another in our communities and really see how do we address the small harms and small little casual acts of violence among one another how do we address those because if we don't have the the state to go to we really only have one another so Mm. how are we taking care of members of the community without canceling them without expelling them without ostracizing them from the community how are we looking and turning to one another and saying you know what i believe that you can transform i believe that we can be in community in a way that is um, not as punitive because we are all that we have.
Yvonne thank you for walking through those different steps of justice. And there are two points that I want to pick up on, which is one, the idea that returning to the status quo is not good enough. And then two, how does the architecture of justice work within the Ashtanga yoga community? What are, are there some instances that you can think about perhaps even, you know, um, something as simple as you quit practice and came back or you started doing yin yoga in addition to Ashtanga yoga? Is there, is there a punitive element that comes in even on, you know, even on some, some very trivial level there? And how, how are those same dynamics at, at play within the yoga system and the yoga community? Mm, yeah, that's a really good way to tie it back in. Um, yeah, I mean, it's it's really the ways in which we hold space for one another in the ways we um, allow each other to belong in community in a way that makes sense for that individual. And so certainly in the way in which I hope to hold space for folks who come to practice with myself and with Petri, we try not to judge people for needing different things that look differently from the sequence, depending on what's going on in their life and, and what they need. Because, and this is this is nothing to do with the practice itself. The practice, yes, there's a structure. Yes, there's a containment. Yes, there's this sort of sequence that may look linear, but it's really not. And so it's just how we choose to, to look at the practice and what elements of the practice we choose to, to, to sort of highlight. Um, what I do see is the fact that, yes, we are all in this swimming in this punitive justice soup. And that's not it's there's not like some magic bubble in our yoga spaces that means those dynamics aren't happening because we are members of society we are we have been receiving this conditioning and this 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 goes deep into the ways in which we've been sort of socialized and conditioned so i would just offer like what do you as a teacher like if a student comes and it's been like you know it's been a while since i practiced and i have this reservation and that reservation and now I do yin yoga um, on some days and ashtanga yoga on other days and that feels like a really good balance are you like cool you know your experience better than I do how can I support you in your process or is it like oh like some kind of passing judgment like you know you're not disciplined or committed enough or it has to be so it's really just, uh, I can only speak for myself and the ways in which um, I've had certainly my ebbs and flows to the physical practice. Some days it's dry season and I might need to, to sit and, and prioritize more studying scripture or my meditation more. Other days it feels like other seasons, it's like, yes, I, I have that, that inner will to give more to the, the physical asana. And that's only because I've, I've, I've just really been able to have the space to explore that. And that really means the practice is deeply mine. I'm doing the practice for me. I'm not doing the practice for the teacher and to like maintain some external marker of like, I'm, I'm, I'm a good yogi and I'm doing something right. And Petri speaks about this. He says that that feeling, that inner will to like, it, it's the power that comes from within 
And this is a really good leeway uh, or or um, segue rather into, I know you wanted to touch upon power. Mm-hmm. And we talked about this in the last last time I was on your on your show, which is power over, mm-hmm. right? When we have power over people, big authority, hierarchy, we've been conditioned into this power over relationship. Punitive just, justice speaks to the power over dynamic versus power with in community. How do we negotiate power with each other and then the power within? And from my understanding, from my own yoga practice, the the yoga teaches this power within and the power with. The power over is just the the sort of, let's say, the muck and the mire of, of, of worldly existence that we need to negotiate. And power over without good reason um, that's that, that to me is himsa. Mm-hmm. Is there a temptation around teaching that sometimes even exacerbates the concept of power over? You know, is there something that in a system where the teacher holds a position of power that can potentially lead people to think that they're, you know, the like a mini guru or something like that? Yeah, that's a good question. I think it has a lot to do with the, not is integrity the right word? I would say how grounded the teacher is in their own humanity, how much work they've done to sort of um, discharge this, um, what I think is a very human fallibility around oh yeah now I got some power so let me start to lord it over you you know what I'm saying I think that's a very human response um, this, that, that particular response is even uh, documented there's there was a, a book I read recently called the power paradox mm. and it was he's, there's a, an individual whose name I can't remember right now but who researched the impact of power on just average people and mm. then the idea was does 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 giving someone power change who they are as a human being. And he found like two very interesting uh, paradoxes. First is that people rise to power through others, that by doing good for other people, you win the trust of other people. And it's those other people that actually put you in a position of power. But the paradox is that when human beings become in a position of power, they lose the very traits that got them in that position. So their people's empathy decreases, people's selfishness increases, um, and to, to such a degree so that it's actually scientifically measurable. Wow. So I'll, I'll just share one, one thing with you that was, that was kind of stuck with me that, um, the children raised in privilege, these are teenagers, they raised in privilege, economic privilege primarily is what um, he was studying, but uh, the intersection of that is probably also race privilege as well. Um, and totally. got this group of, of, of teenagers and w- put electrodes on their brains and then showed them uh, images of suffering children, you know, like children who were going to get a shot and then they were suffering, like, you know, kids don't like to get shots generally, right, neither right. adults really, um, but <laughs> there's better at concealing it. So then, then they showed um, uh, they, they showed these images to the to the children who'd been raised in 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 this very 
kind of high class society. And then they show those same images to individuals who are raised um, in economically poor backgrounds. Right. And there was a dramatically different response in the brain. So the individuals raised in economic privilege versus the individuals raised in economic disadvantage. Those raised with a disadvantage, all their compassion centers lit up, all their empathy centers lit up. And these are children, they haven't really done anything wrong. They've been raised in this. They're just measuring the impact. And then those, those children who are raised with the economic privilege, they, their compassion centers, empathy centers just actually did not light up in the yeah, brain. I believe that. I do believe that. So that's kind of a crazy impact when we think, gosh, you know, if we, if we assume power and claim the mantle of power, then it's a dangerous, slippery slope, whether that's economic privilege or whether that's the role of the yoga teacher. And this is maybe the common expression is don't let it go to your head. As you said, right. the teachers need to be grounded. Well, this is a lot of responsibility for you know yoga teachers out there. Well, so. and this speaks, yeah, I totally, this speaks to the fact that like we are also like, it's not happening in isolation. So it's also like the messaging and the projections and the transference and counter-transference that a teacher is co-creating within the dynamic of the student body. Right. And so I think it's just so important to be able to have, if you're in a position of power, not to isolate yourself and to have those people that will call you out on your BS. <laughs> and that's why it's so good in that sense, like to have, you know, be in relationship and to have my children who always knock down my hubris a peg or two. Um because it just like being in that like sort of just daily negotiation of, of, of like really human relationships. And I will say, I mean, that just keeps, keeps one grounded. Um, and I will say that the, that the, the children are just such a good mirror when it comes to power, especially as I'm trying to reduce this sense of I'm this big parental figure, I have power over you, but it's more like, how can I just really uh, foster you embodying and beginning to cultivate power within yourself? And how might we have power with one another in a way that is not so, so much like about authority, like I am the authority figure. So just from my personal journey just having the children has been such a good way i can just look and 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 try to 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 diffuse the the power differential like it's always going to be there because i'm the adult right and i have the responsibility but it's like how can i just really like cuz i wish to empower my my children to you know be be good in themselves and to be empowered in themselves and and so that's just a personal reflection I think that's a wonderful wish, you know, mm-hmm. and an, an, an interesting, you know, I don't have children, maybe one day, but the, this even an interesting reflection on any relationship where power dynamics can seep in, you know, so you have the teacher student relationship that some people say ends up kind of replicating our parental kind of implant. ever, you know, whatever. Ever. <laughs> yeah. So then, you know, that, that transference of, well, my, my, you know, my mom or dad were really strict and then we get attracted to a teacher who's really strict. And then we Ooh. replicate that. Or we have a, you know, we have permissive parents and then, and then we're, we're seeking attention. 
So then, then we, then we constantly seek attention from the teacher Mm -hmm. and, and then, and then the teacher often gets blamed for, you know, not meeting various standards. And then, and then the, then the, the, the student somehow also can, can also get blamed in the teacher's eyes. And it just kind of replicates the same harm that was done in the past. And then we push the cycle around again. That's right. I'm so glad you made that connection between the, the early childhood figures And so I think it's just so super important that we recognize what can be um, done in a yoga setting with a teacher and what really is the domain of therapy where you can begin to unpack your mother wound, your father wound, or, or, you know, if you have, if you also grew up with, you know, same sex parenting, let's say just like your primary caregiver wounds, Mm -hmm. (laughs) right. Uh, And to really do this, like healing the inner child work, if it means reparenting yourself. So this is stuff that might not like explicitly be like available in the yoga room. I think healing in a somatic level can be there, but it does take some complementary work sometimes to unpack. Well, what is it that this figure is having in my life and why am I sometimes, why is this working and why is it not working? Um, so that we can then like, cause the, we as yoga teachers, we're not, not all of us are trained and we're not all mental health professionals. So we, we don't have that, uh, training and, uh, expertise to, to unpack that, nor do I think it's the domain of a yoga space to go there with people. Right. Absolutely. So addressing these early childhood um, wounds can be very helpful in maintaining healthy boundaries between mm-hmm. teacher and student. And we look at just sort of the collective understanding of, of how we negotiate um, group dynamics, right? What like different countries are going to have different um, expectations and needs of, of a teacher, you know? So for example, like, if if you are practicing yoga in a in a country where maybe not everybody wishes for a quote unquote dictator but that's the energy in which one has been socialized like you said you respond in a way to a strict teacher because that's safe that is what you know that is what you give respect to so I just, uh, I've been thinking a lot about how a non-hierarchical approach works in different countries and how we might be able to um, unpack and introduce ways of, of, of being. It's going to look different depending on where you are in the world. But I think each place is kind of somehow slowly at least integrating and, and, and working with these ideas because it's just in the collective unconscious. We're updating the status quo, you could say. Updating, dismantling, <laughs> hopefully transforming, reimagining, re-envisioning ways of being with one another that are just not about punitive and power over. But it's difficult to do when you see your the government is like cracking down on dissidents and journalists. You know what I'm saying? It's just kind of like a different, there's, there's just a different mm-hmm. need at a certain time. So what I'm trying to say is that the the growth is going to not all look the same all the time. Absolutely. And there, there's this idea of of who holds power, right? Mm -hmm. So if we have this question, not only of dismantling a power dynamic, then there's this question of who is it that holds power? Because 
you know, power is fungible and changing, but in any given circumstance, someone is going to hold power. So even, and then this changes just moment by moment. So, you know, someone is the first, the first person in the door holds a little bit of power, you know, are they going to open the door or not open the door? You know, if someone's selling tickets to an event, so then are they going and they get to choose that there are five free spots, then they suddenly have power. Mm-hmm. And there are these constant, there are these small executions of power. And then there are the big, broader cultural governmental executions of power. Mm-hmm. So when we think about this, it's, it, it's, it's just this question of, who holds power? What is that power? And, you know, if we go all the way back to kind of at least my entry into the Ashtanga yoga world, there were, you know, primarily men and almost all white men in positions of power. They were the authority, they were the teachers, and they were the ones who knew. And, you know, it was it was kind of that or nothing. And I remember struggling so much with the question of where do I fit in here? And all of my questions and all of my, you know, um, particularly in, in, not when I went to India to practice with, you know, Patabi Joyce and Shara Joyce, but more these sort of Western teachers when I would ask my questions to, um, and I'm not, I don't want to name anyone specifically. I really give thanks also to the generation of those Western teachers because without them, none of us would be here today. So again, we're not working in this binary of now they're all bad and we're canceling them. Absolutely not. I would still go practice with all of, you know, those old white dudes, right? (laughs) (laughs) respect for them and practice for all of them. And it's difficult to look at an image and then think, well, where do I fit in? And then to ask a question and then in this authoritarian model to have it shot down and then to somehow keep going. You know, it's, it's, it's difficult. Totally relatable content. Absolutely. So who holds power now, you know? And, and so that's, that's kind of this question of, well, where, and, and I like this decentralized idea of power that it's not necessarily, you know, the person with the crazy asana practice. It's not the person that accumulated the most hours or has the favor of this person or that person, but it's like, well, if you have power, if you have a voice and you have something to share and the students show up, then the students I feel can be the ones who really choose who has power? Yeah, that's a really good point. That's a really good point. The the and I think we did talk. I did some of these. It's kind of nice. Like some of these themes are coming back from our first our first um, conversation last year. I think there has been a, a more decentralized approach to it, and that there is a more collective. Uh, there's a more collective sense of like, hey, but actually we, the masses, we, the collective, get to vote with our feet, as they say, and choose like who we're going to listen to and who we're going to practice with. And and that's exciting to see. And again, this is not a binary. Um, I think what, what we see now is that... Uh, there's still those who are just more visibly seen as as the right holders of authority and the the, the people that we give our respect to, um, and those that are still sort of working um, in the margins and needing to navigate uh, being erased or made invisible because 
the collective still doesn't recognize them as this is somebody I could go learn yoga from. This is somebody that I wish to invest my time and resources in. You know, so for example, um, I took um, a trans teaching trans affirming yoga training. Very recommended, rec highly recommendable. Um, it was uh, at Trans Yoga Teacher, and he they recommended that we take yoga classes with fat teachers because there's a whole heck of a lot of fat phobia in yoga and in society in general. So I sit and ask myself, have I taken a yoga class with a fat teacher before? Actually, yes, I have. It was on your platform. Thank you very much. <laughs> and it was wonderful. <laughs> but how do I mm, centralize the fact that I respect this person and I want to learn from them. That's something that I have to make effort to do because yes, I have internalized fat phobia totally, right? I am of this, this society in which we live. Have I taken a class with a black trans teacher? So I think, again, if we're talking about expanding the definition, it's like we, we have work to do to continue to expand who quote unquote deserves to sit in the seat of teacher? There's still work to be done mm. in that, right? And so I learned so much from this training. And I think the work going forward is to continue to, to learn from the more marginalized um, uh, um, amongst us and not to somehow centralize yourself in that way it's 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 important to to not make it again all about me like oh i'm such a good person i went and took a trans affirming train you know what i'm saying because it's it's just the the responsibility that i have as a person who has this privilege to um um what's the word i'm looking for disarm myself from the harm of transphobia that I consciously or unconsciously perpetuate as a result of my cis privilege. Mm. So I do think there's work to be done in expanding the definition of who is um, able to, 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 to um, embody or not embody, who is able to ha have the seat of, of teacher in yoga. There's work to be done still. Oh, definitely. Lots of work to be done there, yeah. you know? Yeah on an individual work. And then also I, I, I want to, I want to just also kind of point out that when you take a class with the teacher, that there's, that there are kind of two ways that we can do that. There's a lot of free classes that are out there and then there are paid classes. And this is something that comes up very much in the yoga space, which is this concept of free labor. And we're constantly yeah. asked to do things for free and I do so I do so much stuff for free personally. And I know you do too. And, you know, and this is, this is nothing against that. Right. And at the same time, there's this question in, you know, the idea of if I'm benefiting from this at some moment, let me vote with my dollars, you know, cause we, we do that That's every right. day. We go around right. and we buy a coffee and we choose this store over that store. You know, right. We wouldn't, we wouldn't walk into a coffee shop and be like, could I please have a free cup of coffee? That's right. You know, I mean, and at the same time, there are loyalty programs where like you earn that free cup of coffee and that's totally mm -hmm. cool. And I'm definitely um, 
swayed by loyalty programs. So I like that free cup of coffee, just like anyone else or juice or whatever. Um, And at the same time, it seems like there's this interesting dynamic of, okay, well, there are some teachers say like a fat teacher, a trans teacher, um, a teacher of color who might be expected to give more free labor um, to win their place in, you know, a a, a seat of power, whereas a teacher um, who is- Or even just to get a foot in the door, not even a seat of power, just to get the foot in Mm -hmm. the door. Carry Mm -hmm. on, carry on. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, No, good point. Yeah. Foot in the door is not a seat, a seat of power. It's a super good point to to delineate that. There's, there's even, there's a long path (laughs) between those two. And then, Mm -hmm. and then you have people that might more easily be uh, looked at as someone who holds power within the status quo, speaking to our unconscious biases um, and all the intersections of privilege. And then that person is just naturally asked, what's your fee? And, you know, and then, (laughs) you know, or even offered a fee. And then then students fall into that as well. Well, here's this topic. Oh, gosh, if it were free, I'd totally drop in on that. Oh, but it's it's twenty dollars. Oh, you know, I'm not really sure that I want to spend the twenty dollars to come to this, you know, panel discussion on X, Y and Z. But yeah, like, you know, $20 for a handstand workshop with this teacher. Sure. Like that, that seems like a good use of my money. And we do work hard for our money. And I get that. Like we're, you know, we work hard for our money. Me too. You too. Everyone. So we, 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 where we spend our money is precious to us. And this is, you know, this is, this is, I don't think there's an easy answer for it. We all have to find the the path within ourselves of what, what free labor we're willing to do for what results versus when we think it's, you know, necessary and appropriate to ask for payment um, on an individual level, on a structural level. And then also in the student's level to think about, oh gosh, like I've benefited from all this free labor that this teacher has given scratch your head and think, gosh, how, how can I support them? Even if it's, you know, even if you don't have very much money, you know, maybe, maybe look for an offering that's like a a lower dollar offering or donation based offering and and support that teacher. If you've benefited from them, because it really, it really does. It really does make a difference. It does. It does. Oh, Kino, you said a whole word there. Um, well, it does speak to the intersection that the fact we we are doing our <laughs> we are participating in this yoga industry, which is you know not separate from you know this racist capitalist structure that we're all trying to navigate and negotiate. I think there's a fine line between exploitation and representation, and so. I would love to see, like, if we really are going to go from knowledge and theory of how to be equitable and um, anti-oppressive, I think <laughs> we are at a place where we do have an understanding of racial awareness that I think in the collective we didn't have a year and a half ago. We are starting to have more awareness of the intersectionality of systemic oppression in terms of um uh, gender diversity, certainly around issues of homophobia, of transphobia, of ableism. Um, and so I think it really, we do need to be very cognizant of the fact of when we are benefiting from free labor, when we are asking people from free labor, examining what is my social location in 
in um, relation to this person? And am I benefiting from this? Or am I, like, what is my why? Understanding that it's exploitation and representation are, are super close together, right? And so the fat, black, trans yoga teacher who is invisible and wants to get more yoga students, you know, that's a very different power relationship to somebody who is more of the status quo. If you're white, if you're male, if you're cis. And so if a white cis male person is asking somebody of a very different power differential to them to do free labor, I would just offer that you sit with that and try to, to see are there ways I can be a bit more equitable in how I'm doing business with this person. Not just that like, well, I don't pay anybody for my podcasts, right? I'm giving them the opportunity. They should be grateful. Mm, you know, that's, that's kind of like a little bit like we can, we can sit and think. Especially if um, podcasts are monetized, because some people are, especially if you know, monetized. some podcasts are monetized yeah. To, yeah. to a degree that's, that's uh, it, it really intense. And then, yeah. you know, I've thought, I thought, of, yeah, that's, exp that's overt exploitation. If yeah. your podcast <laughs> is monetized and you're not paying your guests, right? Yeah. Or doing at and, least a revenue share off of each episode, you know, something, something. Mm -hmm. And so for the, on the yoga student part, um, again, like we just talked that there's more power in the collective. So it's like, what are you saying yes to? What are you giving importance to? Um, and I, there's an opportunity, there's an invitation where we can begin to just shift, uh, what we are ready and interested and willing to, 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 to give our money and our time to. And the idea is that, there's, that, yes, there is an intersection between spirituality and politics, that, yes, you know, the Bhagavad Gita is written for householders, for people who are in the cut and thrust of worldly affairs and worldly life. So how can you say that, that, that yoga is, is separate from that and that you just should stick to doing asana like where's the spiritual maturation in that kind of thinking? You know what I'm saying? And, you know, I think that, yeah, uh, there's, there's certainly like, we are not the authorities to be speaking of on everything, but it's like, well, maybe in our circle of influence, we can really just kind of tend to this, this matter. And, and, you know what I mean? Like, we don't have to be all things for all people at all the time, but it's like if we can just look at, you know, um, things that intersect with yoga and spirituality, I think it's our duty. Absolutely. And our responsibility. To do the work. Yeah, totally. And, and I really like that because I feel like sometimes people want just a really simple thing that can give them that check off. It's like, okay, so I should pay teachers. And it's like, eh, that's not, you know, like it's not that. Simplistic. That's so binary. It's not like, yeah. and, or, I mean, there's, there's, there's nuance to it and there's different, yeah. Um, yeah. you know, just context. And so it's just like, it's a, it's kind of a more fluid, just a little bit more reflection. reflection. And, and again, this is something that, you know, cause I've been doing a lot of studies with, with in Buddhist spaces and there in Buddhist spaces, they talk about dana, which is generosity. And so, and they're just very kind of just, 
they say it out in the open, like, here's the teacher's Venmo or PayPal, go practice Dana, right? And so it really is like, they make no like, uh, 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 this, that, and the other. It's just like, you give Dana. If you get benefit from the teachings, you make a gesture of generosity because it benefits you. So it's this circle of mutual reciprocity. And this is one thing I would like for us to be a little bit more cognizant of and practicing mm -hmm. is, again, this idea of dana. So if something is freely given, if you benefit from it to your capacity, what's wrong with giving back a little bit? If, no, a no, fee, if no fee has been asked. Yeah, it's dana. It's a huge thing. I hadn't really heard of it before um, I started to like attend different Buddhist offerings. So let's, I, I would say like, it's an invitation for us to practice dana <laughs> in our yoga spaces. <laughs> yeah. I, 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 when I, the meditation that I've, I've been practicing for 20 years or so is also, is also Buddhist meditation metta. and yeah, the, and the metta and vipassana and that whole tradition. Mm, oh yeah, that's right. That's right. You and every do time this. you do a course, um, the, they literally say these courses are completely free and we won't accept your money. When you finish the course, um, you, you have the opportunity to give dana. Mm -hmm. And what they say is you have to understand that you're not paying for your course. If you nope. benefited from the course, yeah. your dana is to support the next batch of students Ooh, that are coming yeah. in. Yeah. And so it's, and yeah. then, and then there's two things that happen. One, while you're there, you live off of the generosity and giving of others. That's beautiful. And yeah. then if you benefited, then to the best of your ability, you give. And they literally oh, say, is... if you didn't like this teaching, like, please don't give anything. Right, right. But you know? chances are most people did get yeah, something I mean... out of it and are happy to give. And this is this, like, you can call it pay it forward in yoga spaces uh -huh. where you... Um, are having some economic privilege and you have some extra, so you pay for a space. Like, that's a beautiful thing. Why are we not normalizing this? Why are we not using this, right? Um, and then again, this speaking to this mutual reciprocity, this like interconnectivity, like these are ways that we can very tangibly and practically like practice reciprocity. So then it's like that we're not like taking more than we are give, uh, just giving, giving. Uh, sorry, mm -hmm. we are not taking all the time and we're not giving and, and depleting, right? Mm -hmm. So it's just this beautiful way to practice community care so everybody gets what they need. To think about that on the student level, you know, what can I give? What mm -hmm. can I give? And how can I show up and give? I, I like that a lot because the, the teachers do show up and give a lot. And um, I, I, you know, and then as a student, I've, I've, I, whenever I get the opportunity to practice, I definitely have even this idea of Donna's not always financial, right? So right. sometimes it's like you see that the shala hasn't been cleaned. And then, you know, even though you're a paying student, you say, shall I help clean up the blankets? It looks like you need a little help today, yeah. you know, to lend yeah. a helping hand here and there. Uh, mm -hmm. This is, this is, a, and again, it's not asking for free labor. It's this idea of, okay, well, if I'm, again, if I, if I feel that and it comes up within me, I've personally offered that. And then sometimes right. the answer is, no, we're totally good. We have someone that's doing that later. Right, and, right, you know, right. that's okay too. And I will just speak that there is a, if, if the student comes like with pure intention and a happy giving heart, um, when we're talking about just like, because there has been like on an industry level exploitation of like karma yoga, where it's like, well, mm -hmm. we expect you to come in and do the blankets for free, right? And so there, there is like on an industrial structural level, there has been, and the, there has been uh, uh, the 
the danger of exploiting people and expecting free labor on the institutional level. Mm -hmm. So I think the um, yoga is dead. They had a, a really good podcast episode about karma yoga. Um, mm -hmm. And just when we're talking about um, the more exploitative uh, yeah. uh, parts of capitalism. Well, oh, absolutely. As a yoga studio owner, uh, co-owner, you know, my, my husband, uh, Tim, he normally sits with more of the you know, decision-making and operational decisions in Miami Life Center, but something, there's two things that we've talked about, which is first, there are going to be these groups of students that come in and don't have money to, um, you know, to take classes. And there are some within that body that we want to give a scholarship to. And then there are some within that body that we want to give a work-study program to. And we have, we've worked out a very clear hourly rate for the work study and it's a clear work study program. So you work this many hours, like you do this, this equals this hours, which equals this rate per hour that you're going to be paid as a credit in the yoga studio. And if that works for you, then you can do it. And if not, that's okay too. At the same time, we also have complete scholarship. Uh, and th those scholarships are, are, you know, reserved for members of marginalized communities only. And this is something that's extremely important to us because, every, you know, there's a lot of people that come in and say, well, why can't you give me a scholarship? You right. know, and we say, yeah. well, our scholarships are reserved for empowering, you know, members of marginalized communities. We have yeah. this work study position available if you're that's interested. Right. Yeah. And then, yeah. and then we make a clear, a clear distinction on that. And it's been super important for us to be clear on the work exchange is not, is, you know, it's not, it's not endless free labor. You document right. your hours. We, we are right. paying you an yeah. hourly rate that you yeah. can exchange as credits for that's classes, right. yeah. Yeah. you know? Yeah. And, yeah. and if that's not really clear, then what can end up happening is someone comes in with a pure heart and says, you know, can I do a little work in exchange for classes? And then they end up just doing like crazy stuff and becoming, yeah. you know, like a slave to the yoga studio, yeah. you know, just to use an expression. And then the idea is that then they just end up getting placed all these personal tasks and going uh -huh. far and above and beyond uh, what a fair hourly rate exchange would be to donate mm -hmm. some time in an exchange for classes. And it's yeah. definitely a thing that's out there mm -hmm. under this kind of false karma, karma exchange. And so, yes. you know, if you're interested, if you're a student or a yoga studio owner, my advice is just make it really, really crystal clear. Yep. Be really clear, almost like sign a contract in what you're getting. It's a, it's a, it, you're, you, this is a, a work, it's a work exchange program, you know, mm -hmm. rather than I'm just going to donate my time. And then the people who are in positions of power who can give Donna, if you're in economic power and you're a paying student and you still feel you want to give a little bit more, then this is something totally different. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And if, if folks are just wanting to have a tangible step, it's like if you're in the position to make decisions and you're holding the resources and you want to share those resources with people who have more, um, who just hold more of the societal brunt of oppression, it's like, let's budget something for anti-equity and for um so that when so that you can hire let's say an anti-equity trainer to come into your space and 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 take that you know take benefit from their services and that so you might be able to say hey let's have so and so on this uh in this offering and we have something to to pay them regardless of what the the that offering brings in, you know what I'm saying? Because then mm -hmm. it's like, oh, we don't know if we'll be able to do this because we don't know how many people are going to sign up, but it's more like we are so committed to this and what you offer. We have a budget for it. So 
regardless of if we have 10 students or 100 students, you're going to still get paid this agreed upon fee. And so this is where I really would like to see the theory and the knowledge of anti-racism and, and equity work becoming into like action and accountability, where the action and accountability is like baked into the, the, the policies and the structure of, the, of, the, of your yoga business. So that's yeah, I like that. Yeah, I mean, and and I think you know, I think yoga studio owners, myself included, can get into this catch twenty two, especially over the last, you know, COVID times, where everyone's just hand to mouth. So then, and then we end up in survival mode. You know, I don't. How can I put money aside for that? I I don't know if I can pay the rent next month. And then we begin to go in this like perpetual cycle. And again, then we're, and then we're operating within this capitalist framework. So then we can take it another level of, Hey, you know, the landlord is not giving the yoga studio a break on rent in the middle of COVID. And I've talked to so many yoga studio owners, myself included, whose landlords have not been able to give them a break. And then the government in the United States, we've got very little assistance. And then uh, in European countries, we're better, but I've spoken with many yoga studio owners, even with government assistants who are down 50 to 60% of their revenue. And then we're asking to ask those people to say, hey, can you take out a budget to you know, fund this? It's a very, it's, it, it begins to get in this kind of, gosh, I don't, I don't know. Yeah. Um, and I think it's possible, you know? Yeah. And I've been thinking about that, like, and I think it's possible. It doesn't have to be a huge budget, but we can we can write that into budgets. And not every yoga studio actually runs with a budget. I know a lot of people just live hand to mouth. Like money comes in and then they pay that bill, and money comes in and they pay that bill. So that's that's another <laughs> that's another topic. It would be great in any system where we have budgets, no matter how small that is, we can make a little a little line item, and it can even be a dollar a month. And then okay, so it might take some years to accumulate, and then on the like on the second level, this is also where I feel that either either non-governmental organizations or actually government organizations could come in. Because, um, for example, in Miami, we have something called the Community Redevelopment Association, the CRA. And the CRA uh, has different grants that you can apply for for particular purposes. So one of the things that now that we're now that our new space is open and we fall within this um, this particular zone where the CRA is in effect, we can apply for money to run a particular program to pay mm. presenters. Very and so cool. this is some this is something that that I, that maybe if you're a yoga studio owner and you're you want to host say a panel discussion or you want to host a teacher, but you don't think your community is going to be able to, you know, ready to, to actually pay for that. So you want to offer it for free, maybe explore some government grants, some NGO grants that might be there. I have a feeling, I don't know, I haven't researched in Scandinavia, but I have a feeling that there may be more support for that in uh, the Nordic countries and maybe even in Central Europe. I'm not sure. Um, I have no idea about any government support in South America or in, throughout Asia, but perhaps there's NGO support for those studios that they may be able to reach out. And it's not a huge amount of money that that, that you would need to make a successful event and pay a teacher or even a group of teachers, you know, um, a, a, some sort of a fee uh, to, to, to just show that their time is valuable, you know? Right. So that's right. something that, that, that we're personally exploring now that we're open and we can qualify for that. And that's a way that maybe if you're living hand to mouth yourself and you feel you can't take the money out of your own budget or you end up closing, then we can think outside the box mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. or even yeah, no, 
sponsor maybe for the event as well is another totally option. no i recognize the the fact that we are in in these times and that there's this like need to like oh well i just i just i have to survive um and <laughs> the fact that that we're thinking outside the box and just really like it's just really more of like well how can we just like re-envision and just kind of imagine and recreate and it takes perhaps a bit more effort but it's kind of fun to imagine what's possible and it might take a little bit of, of of work like just to restructure things but again it's this approaching it with this sense of possibility uh the sense of this is like we are sort of just it's 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 let's say like consistency over urgency so how do we just sort of plant new seeds and begin to water them so things are down the line more equitable and we really are embodying and and living uh, a deeply engaged yogic life so it's exciting and yeah. it's nice to hear what what you have been working with and gathering research on and um, it gives me just a lot of, of hope and um, it's encouraging so yeah. I thank you for your efforts Oh, thanks, Mavali. Thank you so much. And um, and then maybe we can give everyone who's listening just some maybe actionable takeaway items if they want to show up and put in the work. Um, you know, the the recommended reading that uh, that, that you shared from these uh, the, the the this woman who's a mediator and mm-hmm. this other teacher that you shared. We will put those in the show notes. Yes. Uh, and then this process of self reflection mm-hmm. of just sitting with things. And would you like to give every, someone, everyone else, um, everyone who's listening and, and some additional next steps for, you know, expanding that definition of Ashtanga yoga? I would. <laughs> I'm going to actually plug my Patreon <laughs> because this is where, like, it's a very experimental space. I have a Patreon, which is Wellness with Wambui, and it's called Healing in Community. And so it's an experimental space where we meet monthly uh, for sessions. Sometimes we may do physical asana, sometimes we may not. But one aspect that I'm really, really excited about is community sharing, where we have members of the community um, have time to, to speak on a topic that is close to them, to speak on a topic that they have lived experienced in that I cannot based on my uh, uh, identities. And um there, even there, I'm not expecting those community members to practice free labor. And I said, you know, that uh, I recognize that I'm asking your time and your um, uh, mental efforts in the knowledge that you share. So I will be giving some form of remuneration. And these are people that are supporting me on Patreon. So it's, again, this idea of mutual reciprocity, right? So even if it's something small, like five euros for a cup of coffee just to be like thank you I recognize um, and I benefit from you so this is just the ways in which I, I, I um, I'm practicing community care so that's one thing you can do if that's of interest to you and I would love if you could include that in the show notes um, and just yeah just uh, the I would just offer that we give ourselves permission to expand far and wide what this Ashtanga yoga means. And yes, we can read sacred scripture. And yes, we can read transformative justice. And both are filling the vessel of this, like, number one, we have this timeless indigenous knowledge from our South Asian kinfolk. 
And then we have this like innovative and just extremely practical, but dreaming abolition and dreaming ways of being that is not about harming one another and just seeing where these streams of knowledge merge into the wider ocean. It's limitless and it's beautiful. And so I would just say that like, just, just, just trust all streams of knowledge because it's all, it's all good and it's all beautiful. And essentially it's all just kind of yoga. (laughs) Yeah. Super. Well, thank you again for sharing your wisdom and your insights. And this has been a really insightful, lovely, uh, deep conversation. I just thank you for that. Thank you too, Kino. I just, I just appreciate connecting with you and I just recognize your, um, just courage, your wide open heart, your commitment to really walking the walk. Um, and I just so appreciate having you as, as just walking together, um, in this. So thank you. Thank you. Hey there, it's Kino here. I just wanted to thank you for tuning in to my podcast. Your support and your time and your attention really mean a lot to me. If you're enjoying this podcast series, you can find the full-length videos on my online channel, OMSTARS, and that's at www.omstars.com. You can redeem a 14-day free trial and get access to our full library of over 3,000 classes and also practice yoga with me online. I'd also love to see you in class sometime. So you can find my full live in-person teaching schedule on my website, which is kinoyoga.com. And if you haven't checked out my books, I'd absolutely be honored if you'd check those out. You can find those available at any online bookseller. The Yoga Inspiration Podcast is designed to keep you inspired to get on the mat. And I hope you're leaving each episode with a little glimmer and spark of the spirit, which is the true heart of the yoga method. Thanks so much for tuning in, everyone. May you be happy. May you be peaceful. May you be filled with love. Namaste.